So the title of today's message today is Cultivating Disciples. And we're going to be um, jumping a little bit through the scriptures. We're going to be starting out in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, then Acts chapter 16, 1 through 3, and then 1 Corinthians 1 through 11. Has anyone here ever gotten into a stupid argument that you regret even getting into? I know I have. I have a tendency to want to argue with people about things. I don't know if you knew that about me, but sometimes I think that I'm right and I have to prove that I'm right. And I end up getting into stupid arguments about things. And Back in the time before Facebook or Twitter or other social media, um, if you wanted to have an online argument, you would have to go to something called a chat room or something called an online forum. And I know those 20-something here are like, what the heck is one of those? But that's what you had. That's the only thing you had back then to be able to talk with people. And one of the discussions that we ended up having in one of the theology forums that I um, was an administrator of was whether a person should live like on a well in a welfare situation or or use welfare to get out of that situation and pull themselves up by their bootstraps more or less. And there are two sides of this debate, and everybody's kind of just a typical political kind of debate, just yelling at each other online, typing in caps, that's how you yell at somebody online. And people are going back and forth, some people saying, well, some people can't work, or they came from poverty, or they, you don't understand what they had to go through in life, and so they, you know, the welfare is the only thing that they have, and they never got a chance to get an education and all this kind of stuff. And I was kind of on the other side of the argument, which was, you know what, I understand. People can go through some rough times. People can be born into poverty. People can be born to drug-addicted parents. I mean, they can have all this kind of stuff um, thrown at you. But I said, darn it, this is America. In America, you can succeed if you want to work hard enough. And people should be able to want to get out of that kind of situation. I mean, it's America, right? I mean, America doesn't always ensure a result, but it will give you a chance to succeed if you're willing to work for it. And as with most political or online conversations especially, they usually devolve into a bunch of name-calling and, and everything. And somebody even called me out by name saying, well, it was obvious I've never had any hardship in my life, and I'm using my white privilege to keep other people down, and that kind of a thing. And that's kind of like waving a red flag in front of a bull with me. It's... It's, it just gets me so frustrated when people pull that kind of thing because it's, it's like, you don't know me. You don't know where I came from, okay? I grew up in the ghetto, okay? I, I grew up in the bad part of Kenosha. And if you grow up in the ghetto, you have to have, maintain something called street cred. Street cred is your reputation. It's your reputation. You're a tough guy, and you don't be messed with because if you step to me, I'm going to beat you up. That's just kind of, kind of the way you have to grow up in that kind of a situation. I said, you don't know where I came from. I came from the hood. I grew up in the bad area of town. I said, my parents split up when I was four and a half. My mom was on welfare. Most of my younger years were spent in a house where people were too drunk or too high to even cook supper half the time. I said, I grew up in a house where... Um, being moved to various relatives. I got, uh, grew up in a house where drugs were sold and even grown in the whole house I was living in. Even though I was relatively intelligent, I dropped out of high school when I was 16. I was functionally homeless for two years. I was going from friend to friend's house, crashing on their couches and everything. I said, I made every mistake a young person could make in life, 
And at 18 years old, most people had just written me off. You'll never be anything. You'll just be a bum. I said, I used that background with this person to say, government didn't help me at all. No one helped me. No one would give me a hand up. I said, there was no government money for me, no program, no charity. I just had to finally make a decision in my life that I no longer wanted to be a victim of circumstance. And I made the choice to succeed in life. In other words, I pulled myself up on my own bootstraps and made my, something of myself. And the person I was talking to responded, well, somebody had to help you at some point. I said, no one helped me. Everybody wrote me off. Everybody hated me. And I just finally, I just blew, I just blew them off and shut off my computer. And I'm sitting there, I'm watching TV, and I'm just fuming about this. I'm like, this guy doesn't know where I came from. And until I heard God say, well, what about me? He said, do you think for one second you'd be as far as you are in life right now without me? God kind of gave me a little bit of a Job experience. It's like, where were you when I created the world? It's, it wasn't quite like that, but he started asking me some similar questions. He said, remember when you mocked my servants on that assembly line, when they were trying to tell you about salvation, and you were even making people laugh at them, making jokes and making fun of them? God said, you know what, I was there. He said, you remember that, that same person that sat next to you for months telling you about Jesus? And you mocked him and ridiculed him, and, and, but he still persisted, still kept loving on you? God said, that was me. He said, do you remember how many people blessed you financially when you and Tammy were struggling to dig yourselves out of the hole that you had dug in your life? He goes, that was me. You remember all those people who came alongside you and encouraged you in the ministry when no one else would give you a chance? God said, that was me. And I could go on and on about how God showed me in that moment how he used people to help me in my life. And I had a similar reaction to Job. It's repenting in dust and ashes and saying, yes, Lord, it was you. And it wasn't just me doing it by myself. You see, God used people called disciples to help me get out of that pit that I had dug myself into. A disciple is a follower and a teacher of what a, teach, of, of what a specific teacher um, teaches in their ideas. You see, Jesus is our, is our teacher. We are his disciples. And as his disciples, he left us with some very simple instructions as to what our mission in life is. You'll notice in the Bible that Jesus did not tell us to go forward and build churches. Jesus didn't even tell us to go forth and make Christians. He didn't tell us to go and build huge buildings and monuments or, or even set up programs. What he did tell us to do is make disciples. To duplicate himself in the lives of other people. He did that so his disciples can pick up the other people who are down and out spiritually and carry them until they could do the same thing for others. And today I want to talk about what makes a good disciple of Jesus Christ. A disciple is known for having faith and loving God and loving others. That should be the core of who we are. And that should be the outworking of our faith, is love and multiplication, and wanting to see other people get saved and grow in the things of God. 
there are three ways that, that this growth and multiplication happens. And three ways that we become better disciples. And it's not necessarily a step one, you got to do this, and then step two, you do this, and step three, you do this. It's usually all can happen at the same time. And I want to talk about that this morning, because this is something that we should be dedicating our lives to. And so let's look at these three processes and see how God uses them to bring us from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. I'm going to stop and pray first. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for this message. And I ask, Father, that we take these three steps or processes or, or initiatives or whatever we want to call them, that we will envelop these in our own lives. Because if we do this, then we will by nature make disciples. If this is who we are as a people, it will, we will be contagious to those around us. And Father, that's my prayer for this morning, that we be a people that are just automatically contagious in sharing the love of Jesus with one another. Father God, I ask that you just be with us this morning and help us to understand and apply your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing that we need to do is that we need to be a Barnabas. And that's, we're going to read in a moment from Acts chapter 9 and starting in verse 26. If you don't know who Barnabas was, Barnabas was a disciple in the early church. Barnabas' name was not Barnabas, it was a nickname. His name was actually Joseph. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Barnabas was known as one of the most loved people in the early Christian church because he was a living example of the love and acceptance of Jesus Christ in the lives of others. And one of the ways that Barnabas showed Christ's love, one of the, the biggest things that he did in his life was bringing Saul of Tarsus into the church after Saul got saved. If you remember who Saul was, Saul was the main persecutor of Christians in the, in, the end time, or in the early church. He was the one who went out and grabbed people out of their homes and threw them on crosses or had them put in jail or had them executed for being a Christian. So up to this point, he had been murdering and imprisoning Christians, yet he gets saved. Jesus knocks him off his high horse on the road to Damascus and gets just radically saved radically saved and he comes and he wants to start meeting the people in the church but they're all afraid of him and that's what we're going to what we're going to read about in Acts chapter 9 in Acts chapter 9 starting in verse 26 it says when he 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 is Paul here when Paul came to Jerusalem he tried to join with the disciples but they were all afraid of him not believing that he was really a disciple but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Now think about what Barnabas did for Paul here. The closest modern example I could think of is with if one of you came in one day with a man in a huge turban, huge beard, came in and said, Hi, this is my friend Osama bin Laden. He just got saved. This would be exactly the same thing of what Barnabas was bringing in to the early church. The man that had dedicated his life to killing Christians. 
And that is why Barnabas is the quintessential example of what a friend looks like. That's what we need in our lives. We need this kind of friend in our lives. Barnabas was known for for settling disputes, for creating dialogue, and for bringing two opposing uh, sides together in peace. In fact, I think if Barnabas were alive today, he could even get Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi together and hammer out a deal in two hours. I mean, he was just that kind of a person that could bring these two opposing people together and have them be friends. And his example that, that he shows us today is this. In order for us to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we need to have a friend like that. And a friend like Barnabas is going to show the following attributes to us. The first thing he will show is that he will tell you the truth, no matter how much it hurts. It doesn't mean he's a jerk about it, but he is going to tell you the truth. But he's going to do it in love. Now, I'm going to preface this little illustration a little bit because everybody here is, is from this area, and that this is a generality. It's not a personal attack against any person or people, but it's a general condition that I have found. So I'm, just, I'm prefacing it because I don't want people to be offended. When I first moved to Whitehall, I was met with a challenge. And it was a challenge I was not expecting. I was expecting many things moving up here. I was, I was expecting there's not a Walmart on the corner, and there's not a pharmacy there, and there's not a 24-hour coffee shop over there. I, I expected all that kind of stuff, and we were ready for that. We, we, we had our, our spots uh, mapped out and, and understood how far we would have to travel for certain things. What I didn't expect is I didn't know how to talk to people. I had no clue how to talk to people up here. And I was puzzled when I would talk to people, that they would get offended, really offended, really fast. And I did not understand why. And what I had found out, and after talking to some pastor coaches and talking to people at the district, is they told me that Kenosha, where I came from, is sociologically tied in with Chicago. Chicago people are very, very blunt in their speech. And they don't care if they offend you. And that's what people in a city basically talk like. If you are wearing an ugly sweater, we are going to tell you your sweater is ugly. Up here, we're going to say, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I saw you have a new sweater there. It's like, yeah, okay, I can see why, why you're wearing it. We're going to be, up here, we're going to be more nice. And I was not used to that. So people, everybody thought I was a jerk. I know, surprise, right? You've been trying to tell me that for years, right? And what I found was people that live in a rural area are sometimes more concerned with being nice and pleasant and everything else, where people in a city were just blunt and jerks. And so I, I had found that out, and I point this out because sometimes, even in the Christian church, we think that sometimes being nice is more important than being truthful with a person. And I'm not saying people aren't pure, aren't truthful, they're just truthful in a very drawn out and circular way in, in a way. And I know that people are going to be looking at me like I'm insulting you. I'm not. I'm just saying it's, it's something that we found when we moved up here. And what does this have to do with being a Barnabas to somebody? 
Sometimes we need to tell people the truth, and sometimes we need to tell people the truth in a blunt way. doesn't mean you're a jerk about it, but you do have to say the truth sometimes. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes you need to be able to go, have the freedom to go up to a person and saying, you know, I've noticed this in your life, and I think Jesus would want you to maybe do something a little bit different. It means that if you are going to be a friend to a person, we need to be able to have the freedom to tell them the truth in love. And if we try to do otherwise, if we try to always be nice and pleasant and, and non-confrontational with people, it's kind of like pouring a drink for an alcoholic. We're contributing to the problem instead of standing firm for a solution. And husbands, I'm just going to put a little caveat in here. This does not mean if your wife asks you if she looks fat in that outfit that you need to be truthful. This is a situation you should probably be a little more circular in. Just saying. Tammy gave me the Tammy gave me that joke. <laughs> Number two, a, a friend like Barnabas will stand by you even when you are the least popular person in the world. He may not agree with you if what you have done that, to make yourself unpopular was something really stupid, but his relationship with you is not based on your performance, but it's based off of a sense of agape, God kind of love for you. After a friend like Barnabas confronts a bad behavior, he's willing to stand by you, and he's willing to help get you to that other side. I think the church sometimes were way too fast to throw people under a bus. I've read countless articles and heard this from countless people who said that the church is the or only organization on earth that shoots its wounded. And we have been guilty of that in the past, but we need to be better than that. We need to be a hospital for the sick, amen? Not a museum of supposedly perfected stains. Number three, when you mess up, a friend like Barnabas will risk everything to make sure you have every chance for redemption. I'm not excusing bad behavior at all. Jesus wants and desires and asks for us to live obedient and holy lives before him. I am not taking that away at all. But we also have to recognize that we are human. We're going to fail. We're going to mess up. We're going to even sin on occasion. A pastor will preach and even, even preach a bad message once in a while. We need to be forgiven at times. I had a friend who was a pastor in a church, and, he was, and the head of his elder board came to him and confessed that he had a horrible addiction to pornography. And he confessed it to his pastor, and, and he stepped down. He said, I need to step down from being an elder. I need, I need to get this right. I can't, I can't, in honesty, be in ministry anymore until I get my heart right before God in this. And, and apparently the reason that he even came to his pastor is because his wife had discovered it. And his wife now wanted a divorce. Well, of course, that kind of blew up in the church. And, and usually what happens in a lot of churches is half the people are on the husband's side and grace, and half the people are on the wife's side and law. And, you know, they want, and there was a, a very vocal contingent in the church that wanted the pastor to bring the husband up before the, the church, publicly yell at him, and then throw him out of the church. And the pastor refused to do it. 
Well, the, the people who wanted that guy thrown out, they called for a special meeting, which was in their bylaws. Somebody, certain amount of people call for a meeting, they have to have it. And they demanded in this meeting that the pastor discipline this man and disfellowship this man immediately, throw him out of the church. The pastor refused, and he walked over and stood next to the man and said, if you throw him out, you have to throw me out too. He says he has repented, he has asked forgiveness publicly, and we as a church should love him into being recovered and, and restored. And that's a Barnabas. That's a friend that will stick closer than a brother. Not only do you need a person like that in your life, but you need to be that person in other people's lives. Somebody willing to forgive and bring that person to the other side. The next step to cultivate disciples and work on spiritual maturity is this, and that is that you are to train a Timothy. In Acts 16, verses 1 through 3, it says that Paul came to Derbe and went to, then went to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. I shared this before, but in the medical field, there is when you're teaching... In the medical field, there is a, a kind of a saying we have, see one, do one, teach one. When we're teaching a new procedure, a new way to do things in the medical field, we will show them how they're done. We'll take them step by step, show them how their, this procedure is done. Then we'll let them watch that somebody do that procedure to a patient. The next time, they get to do the procedure for the first time. And we will guide them through doing that procedure. We don't consider a person an expert in that procedure no matter how many times they do it until they teach it to somebody else. And that is the same thing spiritually. Do you see through the scripture we just read how Paul was training Timothy here? Paul didn't tell him, yeah, you know, it's great you want to go into the ministry. He goes, we're going to send you off to college for four years. And then after that, you're going to do a two-year internship. Then after that, find some small church you can be at for a couple years and get some experience. Then you can come and be in the real ministry. He didn't tell him that at all. He brought him with. He immediately brought him and made him an apprentice and trainee with him. He took Timothy under his wings and let him see the work of the ministry right off the bat. He recognized the call of God on his life. That doesn't mean that Paul didn't teach him scripture. That doesn't mean that Paul didn't have some didactic experience with Timothy where he was teaching him theology, where he was explaining how Old Testament scriptures and what they mean in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It doesn't even mean that Paul didn't have some behavioral limits on Timothy that would have been very foreign to a Greek teenager, like getting circumcised. That's a pretty big deal. He still, he showed him all of that. Look at verse 4 again. It says, as they traveled from town to town, they, Paul and Timothy, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. It wasn't just Paul going around making these pronouncements. 
He was letting this teenager, Timothy, handle some of this himself. See one, do one, teach one. This was a very personal, this was very hands-on, and a huge time commitment for Paul to invest in the life of this young man so, so he could someday be able to stand on his own when Paul wasn't around. And you look at the result of Paul's deliberate relationship with this young man. In verse 5, it said, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. This is when one of the weaknesses of the modern church is handing off the scepter, or handing off the baton, if you want to look at it this way. Everybody knows what it means to run a relay race. One guy carries a baton, runs around the track a few times, and then hands it off to another person, who then takes the baton and then hands it off to another person. We in the church are not very good at handing off the baton. Of the senior Christians being able to, hand, to find somebody that's maybe middle age or in their 30s and, and train them up to where they are and hand off that baton so that they can do the same thing the next day. And none of us will ever be really sharp spiritually until we have a Timothy in our lives. For parents, it's largely our children during that part of our life. But once they're grown... Your new Timothy might be parents within the church of a newborn or a new married couple, a young married couple that, that you can show the ways of the Lord and the ways of a Christian married life. They need those experienced saints to walk and show them how to walk with Jesus in a world that's very hostile to everything that we believe. And that's why we need a Timothy in our lives, somebody that we are bringing up to know the things of God. The third and last way that we cultivate disciples and grow spiritually in our own lives is pursue a Paul. In 1 Corinthians 1.11, Paul says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Some of you know, a couple weeks ago, I was down in Milwaukee to attend a conference for emergency medical workers and firefighters. And before I left, one of the guys at work said, Why? Why do you even go to this thing? I mean, it's like, you're, you're like a master paramedic. What are you going to learn? I mean, it's just, you're kind of wasting time going down there. You're not going to learn anything. And half the guys that are teaching are like half your age. I mean, well, why are you even going down there? I said, because I've learned in life, there's always someone smarter than me. And if I'm going to grow as a paramedic and future nurse, I need to find that smarter person and learn from them. And one of the classes I took when I was down there was managing critical patients on ventilators. And I consider myself pretty comfortable in that arena of, of managing people on ventilators. And I thought, you know, even in my own mind, this is probably more than a review than an actual learning time. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. The guy who was teaching the class has been a flight paramedic on both helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft for over 25 years. And he literally wrote the book on ventilator management. The book's actually sitting at work now. His name's Eric Bauer. And I was really impressed by him because he opened the class by saying, he said, if I have any expertise in what I'm going to talk about this morning, it's because I've surrounded myself by people who are way smarter than me. That goes for just about everything in life, doesn't it? If you want to learn, you have to be willing to be humble and let other people challenge your thinking and challenge your practice and challenge your very life. 
until it becomes razor sharp. I thought, man, I want that guy to speak that thought to my church. I'm not, I don't know if he's a Christian, but I thought that was an incredibly biblical thought for him to, to have. And one of the great lessons I've learned in my life is this lesson here. If you want to grow, you have to surround yourself with giants, not fellow midgets. You know the old saying, it's hard to soar with the eagles when you're surrounded by turkeys? Same thing in life. If you want to get better in life at something, find a master at what you want to be better at. And the same thing definitely happens spiritually. If you want to grow in the things of God, you can't spend two minutes a day trying to do it. You have to read the books written by those who came before. People like Watchman Nee. People like, like some of the modern um, great um, preachers out there. Greg Laurie and, and um, um, Tony, um, Tony Evans. And people like that. You need to invest your time. Because our natural human inclination is to drift in life. And we don't like to be challenged. But I'm telling you, if you have that mindset right now in your life that you don't want to be challenged in life, you just kind of want to drift through, you might as well just go pick your tombstone. That's not life. You know, I mentioned a few weeks ago about midlife crises. I said, if I'm having a midlife crisis, it's just, I understand that there's not a lot of time left. I mean, it might be 30, 40 years, I don't know, but I want to live that life. I don't want to just sit around on a recliner and, and just and drift through it. I want to challenge myself. I want to do things I haven't done before. And I think that if you're not growing in your faith like that, if you don't have that same kind of mindset, you're declining in your faith. There's no such thing as standing still in the things of God. You're either growing or you're declining. You can't stand still. Because it's like you're on a, on a hill filled with oil. If you're not trying to climb up it, you're just naturally going to slide back. There's no middle ground. We have to have that dedication to surround ourselves with people smarter than we are in the faith so that we can grow too. And it's not always going to be comfortable. In fact, sometimes it'll be painful. You may have to admit that for years you may have been wrong in your thinking about something. It may cause you to change your entire way of thinking about other things, and it may include you even changing a direction that you are absolutely positive was right for your life. And these godly mentors are absolutely necessary for you, not only to just make it as a Christian, but to grow and be ultimately fruitful as a Christian. You know, I started this message out by talking about God showing me that I wouldn't be where I am today without the help of some of his people. Some of those people in my life, Ron Ox Sr., Dennis Pearson, Jerry and Kelsey Newbrill, Nelson Clare, Vern Lee, Ed Day, Craig Amos, Art and Barb Proventure, Larry Leiby, Rich Lemberg, Dale Hazard, Conrad and Jen Philipson, and even Pastor Roger Dismore. People that have spoken and continue to speak into my life. Even if they don't see themselves that way, many of these people have been my spiritual giants that have helped me grow from my little midget self and grow into things of God. So I would encourage you, find a giant for your life and follow them as they follow the Lord. Amen?
Befriend a Barnabas, train a Timothy, and follow a Paul. Let's be a church family that is committed to following the hard path of being a disciple. Amen?